Welcome to the January edition of Media Talk USA. I'm Jeff Jarvis. We're back for a new year, a bit delayed this month, hangovers, you know, but there's still plenty to drink up. TV networks are playing personality poker with Jay Leno, Conan O'Brien, Simon Cowell, and Sarah Palin. Google finally stands up to China's censors. News Corp finally makes good on one of its threats to cut off an aggregator. And we look at the Internet's ability to cover the financial crisis. Welcome to the January edition of Media Talk USA from The Guardian. Joining me in the studio this month are two esteemed reporters who can not only write but also add and subtract. Adam Davidson is the co-creator of the Giant Pool of Money series on This American Life and of the Planet Money podcast and blog at NPR.org. Welcome, Adam. Hey, Jeff. And from the Wall Street Journal, we welcome Julia Angwin, who covers the links between technology and media and is the author of the book Stealing MySpace. Hi, Julia. Hello. I understand you two went to college together, so you know embarrassing things about each other's taste in music and mates. That's right. Go Maroons. <laughs> that is to say you went to... University of Chicago. We'll have no discussion of Beowulf today. Okay. Darn. Instead, let's bring this down to the pop cultural level and begin with the network's games of personality poker with Jay Leno on the Joker card. I'll quit that metaphor now. On top of moves for Conan O'Brien, Simon Cowell, and Sarah Palin. We'll ask whether celebrities are network's salvation or merely signs of last-ditch desperation. Welcome to the Jay Leno Show. As you know, we're not just a show anymore. We are now a collector's item. Collector's yeah. item. Oh, yeah. As you may know, our show has been canceled. Fired again. Really? Oh. See, that show, James, he's got nothing. Even when they fire people, it's a rerun. Didn't we just get fired in May? I take pride in one thing. I leave NBC primetime the same way I found it a complete disaster. So that's we're leaving it exactly. Well, it took only seven months, but NBC finally admitted that it made the worst media mistake since the now defunct AOL Time Warner merger of a decade ago. Namely, moving Jay Leno to 10 p.m., neatly killing two hours of its nightly schedule with one jawbone. Next, Conan O'Brien issued a tart and classy letter to the people of Earth, refusing to still be host of The Tonight Show when it moved to tomorrow morning. There are so many moving parts here. NBC, which surrendered the 10 o'clock hour to competitors, now must come up with a programming strategy. NBC also set up O'Brien as a new competitor on Fox or maybe ABC or cable. Is this insanity, desperation, or merely stupidity? Julia? (laughs) It could be all of the above, I think. Um, You know, to be honest, like, to most people, this stuff is so weird. Like, who cares at what time it's on? I'm watching it on demand on my computer at work the next day. Sorry, boss. Um, but the clip that I want to see. And so this is um, somewhat of death throes of a scheduling issue that is really archaic. But I think the one thing that's really interesting is that how these people, the celebrities uh, on TV, they're salary and power actually continues to increase as their audience decreases. There's a beautiful study that I'm reading about this right now by this guy Duke um, in All the News Fit to Sell, and he shows that this trend has been going on this um, for 20 years and will continue. So actually, I'm looking forward to it. Maybe if um, all of our media assets property decline enough, my salary might go up. <laughs> I mean, I think it does make sense to me a bit, that phenomenon of these big tentpole celebrity types, even though their their tentpole is shorter and shorter every year, commanding so much power. Uh, the problem, for example, that we deal with in, in public radio, at least as the way I understand it, is we really are in no position to launch a new show as a new show. Like, um, you know, it, it's very unlikely there's going to be a new This American Life or a new Prairie Home Companion just because – 
the distribution channels are so fractured, it's hard to launch something big whose core property is something really valuable, but something you have to experience a few times before you understand. It's much easier to launch a new property or to support an old property if there's something immediately graspable by the audience. And a celebrity is sort of the brand But, but isn't this also kind of the – we're witnessing the death of the mass market, of, well, of we've been witnessing media, that for right? 20 years. And so in that sense, I think it's the last desperate move to say the only thing that can draw in what we used to call a mass, well, we wouldn't before, but all we can call a mass today, is one of these tired old names like Jay Leno. And you know, I'm not a Leno fan. I was a Letterman fan. I'm a, I'm a Letterman confederate. And, and Leno, I thought, was just, just deadly dull. Uh, and so I'm somewhat chortling along with Howard Stern at his failure at 10 p.m. Uh, but – he brings in little old ladies still, right? The, the, the idea that you can create a mass audience among young people. My kids are like you, Julia, because you're young at heart, and they watch TV on Hulu and they watch TV uh, maybe on the DVR, but they're not watching TV. But we're nowhere near there yet, right? Like the Apple TV doesn't quite work yet. Yes. And, you know, I watch a lot of TV and I don't have cable. I don't have any way of watching live TV in my home. And I watch a lot of TV. I download it. I, you know, I stream it, all of those things. But we are still a minority. We're not there yet. And you need, I mean, I'm with you, Jay Leno. I will hope to never hear again. But you need that draw. And that's the thing that I keep coming up against. I mean, we, we face it at NPR, which is that we know that at some point in the next, what, two, five, ten years, the current business model will die. But the current business model is the only way you pay the bills. Well, you're stuck in the same position as, dare I say it, we try not to talk about it too much in this podcast because we've overdone it, newspapers. Right? Newspapers thought they had the cash cow, everything's okay, we're not going to mess up. Fifteen years later, they are at the precipice of the end of critical mass. Let me say that I am fully on Conan O'Brien's side in my heart. I feel like he's the only guy out of all of them that I think is cool. And I'm sure Jeff Zucker is an idiot and I'm sure they screwed this up royally. But there is a way in which I, I have to at least respect the fact that they are trying something new. They are an old media conglomerate that's trying to mess with what does time mean in late night? You know, can we create new properties? You're- I don't know. Aren't you giving them a little too much credit? Didn't they just basically concede defeat uh, for scripted drama and the cost thereof at 10 o'clock? And they thought they had a cheap solution. Let's throw in the jaw. No. Yes, that's a disaster. I'm just saying okay. this. I just found it interesting that they were like, okay, maybe the Tonight Show could start at 12.05. We never tried that before. Let's, I mean, look, I, I don't want to defend NB. They clearly screwed every aspect of this up. It's just interesting to me that this is a major media property doing the thing you always say these big old legacy media doesn't do, which is messing with their core property to see if there's some new way to reach an audience. And at, at least agree. that aspect of it is like interesting. Bold moves are the only way, right? Everyone has to try new things. And so they're risking, you know, humiliation and all that, but maybe they will figure something out. Um, you know, they still are sticking with the same old tired brand names. But, you know, in their mind, this is pretty dramatic. Joe, you cover online. You've watched a huge phenomenon in MySpace being created. Can you imagine media properties of critical mass and scale being created online only? Um, are we there yet? Yes, we are. We haven't. We, Facebook, my, No, MySpace, but I mean, um, I mean, I mean oh, the next ex- star. Are mean, there going to be stars anymore? Yes, there will be stars. But it's going to be a lot harder for people with really high fixed costs and established uh, markets to create the next star. It, they're probably going to emerge like Justine straight out of the internet. 
Or they'll come from, let's say, American Idol, which still has that base of huge that can make someone out of nothing and, and, and do that. So speaking of which – Oh, wait, wait. Can I press you on do. one thing real quick? You were shaking your head and cringing. But didn't in some way, in a terrible, sloppy, horrible, inelegant way, didn't NBC do the thing you've been screaming at legacy media to do for, for years? Didn't they mess with their core property to see if there's some new way – to mess with, with t- yeah. For somebody who covers the economy, I thought you'd be a little more cynical. Uh, you're giving them a lot of credit, and I see your point. But no, I don't really think so. I think they were trying to just uh, move the bricks on the wall as it came down. I think that's what newspapers have done too. Every Sunday, I read newspaper uh, uh, things saying we're still here and we've made all these great changes in the paper, but we're actually coming down. Now the network's doing the same. It was just moving the stuff around. It didn't really reinvent something for a new age. I think you've I convinced think. me. I think you've right. convinced me that that's true. <laughs> Well, so we mentioned American Idol and Simon Cowell, and he, of course, is moving on so he can own his own X Prize, which is a big hit back in the motherland of this podcast in the UK and elsewhere in Europe. Uh, so the X Prize comes in. Simon's out. Paul's out. Paul is out. Uh, Ellen DeGeneres will soon be dancing. Is this the death of American Idol? Once again, the death is relative, right? I mean, their numbers have been declining, and so I think we'll see even more of a decline. Um, but once again, the tent pole, they keep getting smaller, but if you're still the tallest man around, <laughs> you Which have something. Which is Simon, right? Yeah. But, you know, without him, I think the concept of American Idol is still really appealing to people. And I think if these new people who are going to be judging are in any way appealing, people will still stick with it, but just some fraction of those people. But every year, if they get 75% of what they had last year, they're still ahead of everybody else. That's the Jay Leno math, yes. Yes. Now, can I be a lame fanboy for a minute and just say, Simon Cowell is the only one who actually consistently talked about the music and the quality of the music and the quality of the performance. And I would actually learn from him. You know, he would say things and I'd say, oh, okay, I can see pop music in a new way. I thought Cara... Guardia was a good addition because she also talked about the music and gave you insights. And so in that sense, I'm out. Like, I'm, I'm done. And I, I don't know how many people experience it in the way that I experience it. I think that there's um, – I've always had a question about American Idol. Is it actually brilliant or is it just lucky? And I think it probably is brilliant. I think the way that they – just force people who can't imagine they would ever watch a show like this just to have to keep watching. I mean, it's- And to create a new kind of interactivity, I think, as well. And I'm delighted to know that a University of Chicago grad will brag about watching American Idol. That makes me – you have to report him to the Alumni Society. <laughs> brag might be strong. Uh, one more bit of, of personality poker here. Sarah Palin comes to Fox as a commentator in the immortal words of Gomer Pyle. Surprise, surprise, surprise. You know, no surprise there at all. I foresee a bunch of interesting train wrecks we're going to watch. We can't help but watch. We'll learn more about her um, worldview. Uh, will this really set her up to run for president? I think the major problem that Sarah Palin and the sort of anti-Obama contingent has is they don't have a unifying vision. If, if you look at uh, President Reagan uh, or Barry Goldwater, there was this incredible intellectual work laid down incredible whether you agree with it or disagree with it. It was this libertarians and social conservatives are incompatible. They see the world fundamentally differently. Neoconservatives see it in a totally different way. These are three absolutely incompatible worldviews. And then when you add business interest, that's a totally different worldview. So the Republican Party – and I think there's a fifth ideology that I can't think of. So the Republican Party – like the Democratic Party, there is no thing that they believe in. There's fundamentally incompatible views, except that they can get together and hate things together. And so for a long time, communism was this (laughs) awesome thing they could share and hate. And that 
paved over a lot of differences. But the power of one legacy media product, National Review, there is no story of President Reagan's election or the overall rightward turn of our government starting in the 80s that doesn't start with William F. Buckley Jr. and his brother-in-law, Frank Meyer, who created the ability of libertarians and uh, conservatives to rule, to have an actual administration. That's the challenge. It's no trick to get a bunch of people to hate something together. It's much, much harder to say, here's how we are going to govern. Here is the policies that we are going to propose. And my hunch is that Sarah Palin reaches a very small number of those groups in a here's how we're going to govern way, but she reaches all of them and here's who we hate way. So Julia, we were talking earlier about Michael Wolf before we came on the air, and and he's arguing that Roger Ailes just wants to hedge his bets and have whoever is going to be the next president on his air. Do you think he's succeeded? Uh, first of all, I'm not sure that that's true. I mean, I actually don't. I can't think of another example of someone who went from Fox News to president. So uh, no, he's ready for the next one. Huckabee, but even or, for a candidate, yes. right? Um, but on the other hand, I think that the truth is Roger Ailes has done a great job with Fox News of really just making news um, out of his news channel, right? And so in a way, like the news hit of Sarah Palin joining Fox News Channel is actually as much the story for them. I mean, they still have a fairly small niche audience. They make a lot of money because cable channels are inherently like really profitable. But it's still not a huge slice. But the more that they get their name out there, the more they fight with the White House about whether their coverage is fair, you know, this all keeps them in the mix, I had this vision of Sarah Palin as his Paula Abdul. Right. <laughs> but can I, can I just add, if, every time Mike Huckabee talks about economics, he loses a tremendous part of the Republican Party. He's generally skeptical of trade. He's very skeptical of, of a free market and, you know, lack of regulation. He, he is, I would think, unelectable as a Republican precisely because he talks so much. And Sarah Palin does not have a unified economic idea. The libertarians, the business conservatives who I tend to talk to despise her. They find her offensive. So just my gut sense is the more she talks and the more she has to actually address issues – the weaker and weaker she will be within the Republican Party. Glenn Beck is the only guy, and I look, I think he's a nut. I really think he's a nut. I'm not, you know, I think he has a bizarre conspiracy theory way of seeing the world. But he's the only guy who truly has an appeal both to social conservatives and financial conservatives. He, he seems to really have integrated libertarian ideas. So if there's a Fox contributor who can unify the Republican Party – It's Glenn Beck. It's Glenn Beck. For president? That, no, no, no. Okay. I don't think he'll ever be president. I'm not saying that. But he's All the right, only guy who's tried. On that note, we better move on or else I'm going to hang myself. So now some news in brief. Google has announced that it has had it with the cyber attacks from China, which the company says are aimed at dissidents' email accounts, and with censorship on behalf of the Chinese government. So it is threatening to pull out. I was astounded and delighted. Don't be evil indeed. Will this have any impact on China's censorship and on other Western companies that support it? Julia, what do you think? I mean, I think this is a really interesting move on Google's part because in some sense, they're attempting to negotiate with China. They're not 
withdrawing. They didn't actually shut down. They said, we are threatening to withdraw. This is the beginning of a negotiation, right? So they're saying, essentially, we had a deal, China. We would censor our results, but you can leave us alone other than that, and we kind of agree on what are the topics we'll censor. Now they're essentially saying, China has been hacking our computers, either helping some hackers do it or actually doing it themselves with their intelligence agencies, and so our deal is off. And so... I think there's about to be a negotiation stage where they may come to some agreement. But um, it's interesting because no one has really won an agreement. You don't negotiate with totalitarian governments and certainly no one has ever done that no in one. No one has stood up against them. Yeah. Yahoo, Nokia, Siemens, uh, Cisco, uh, a lot of companies serve their ends and finally someone's standing up to them. I'm, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you on, on the no one stood up to them. If, if you read about the Western experience in China in the 80s or early 90s, it is you show up. You're assigned some relative of the governor of whatever province as your business partner and everything's a disaster and they're just stealing money from you left and right. So so I, I can't think of any big public, you know, General Motors or Procter & Gamble or someone, some major company in some big public way saying, screw you, China, we're not playing your way. But there has been an absolute transformation and, and the development of a real working relationship, one that can be profitable to both sides uh, over the last 20 but years. that didn't so, come from anyone standing up from them. That came from the Chinese government seeing a new opportunity in capitalism, no? But it also came through waves of investment. You know, late 80s, early 90s, there's a lot of, oh my goodness, China's going to be the next Japan. And then we went through this lull. I mean, the mid-90s, China... Right, but every China company would, I've seen, Adam, and I, and I even worked at about.com uh, when the New York Times took it in there into China, and basically I, I saw them all bow to what they needed because they lusted after that huge market so much. I saw no one say to them, you know, you really shouldn't censor. That's bad. That's evil. It's not like working in an open democracy. There's no, no question. But the idea of, of American companies pulling out when China's rules make that market unattractive and then China responding by making it a bit more attractive, not publicly, not coming out and saying, oh, boy, we were really corrupt. We were terrible. But just subtly changing right. the rules a little bit, making a better arrangement. I think that's been the story of the last 20 years. Yeah. And I, In some I, sense, it's been a subtle negotiation for years where China has been giving and taking, right? And now Google's actually just sort of saying, let's take this to the next level because you have basically violated our trust. And just as a little bit of a backdrop, this is a really bad year in China for the internet, right? There has been more censorship this year than there has been in the past. So clearly, there's been somewhat of a regression this year. And I think it took someone with the power of Google to say, you know what? Enough is enough. And I think it's a really interesting point in time for China because this is the only time um, that you could even imagine that they might negotiate. Now, I will say that the, the negotiation with China that, that is the highest stakes is the currency negotiation that the U.S. government has been dealing with for a very long time, which is basically China overvalues their currency artificially, which makes every American good more expensive and Chinese goods cheaper for us. And the President Bush administration and the President Obama administration have all agreed you subtly say negative things for a domestic audience in America so that you know unions and stuff know you're fighting the fight, but you never publicly – humiliate China or it's over and we won't get anything for 10 years. You do it all subtly and you try. That's and why I'm delighted that Google has had the balls to stand up. Uh, I'm, I'm the official Google fanboy. I wrote What Would Google Do? And I did criticize them in the book for their China policy. They said that it was better to have a hampered internet than no internet at all. But I also say that Google, more than any company on earth, lives and dies by free speech and open information. And so I'm delighted they've stood up. But if past is prologue, what we're going to see as Julia said, is they're never going to do this. There's going to be some solution announced in a week or a month or whatever that shows that, oh, 
Google and China have reached this new agreement that everyone thinks is wonderful and it's fabulous and it it, it allows both to save face and it doesn't it, it doesn't changes change things anything. in a more <laughs> subtle way. Maybe it makes some changes, but yeah. it's not fundamental. We'll see. So on to another topic of trying to control media. News Corp made good on one of its threats, cutting off an aggregator. News Now has been stopped from linking to the company's content. Uh, News Now then responded with a campaign to champion our right to link. This is the thin end of the wedge. If you can equate linking with stealing content, then everyone is a potential thief. Your right and ability to find news and share links to it via social networks, blogs, search engines and link aggregators is threatened. If anybody could curb the right to link freely, it would seriously damage the ease of access to digital information that drives the economy today. It would undermine the free flow of public information and restrict what people can know and not know. That would see your right and ability to find, access and communicate information severely compromised. I think we do indeed have a right to link. If anyone, media site, company, government can selectively prevent someone from reading, analyzing and linking to anything that is in public, then isn't that a nail in the notion of fair comment and free speech online? Adam? Obviously, I don't think that how could anyone have an actual intellectual argument against my right to link? I can tell you about a link. That's ridiculous. But I would say this is very typical political economy for dying legacy industries. And you can see this throughout our economy. We're we're working on a – it'll probably take us a year or something, but a This American Life show about – just how free is our free economy and, and all the many, many ways that various companies, uh, various industries have basically bought protection from the government in the US, UK, around the world to protect their legacy privilege, uh, which is very damaging to entrepreneurship, very damaging to innovation and productivity growth. I mean, you can see this everywhere. Just the other day, I was trying to buy some wine online. Do you know how complicated, how many laws there are? Not about protecting children from getting drunk, but just protecting Business wine interest. In business yes. interest. Beer is, happens to be the same way. But you see this throughout the, the, the railroads, the healthcare industry, on and on and on. There are millions of parts of our economy. There is no argument for farm subsidies, but it is one of the central defining aspects of U.S. agriculture purely because of incumbent interests that were able to amass power. By the way, this is exactly when it happens. There's a saying among political economists that when business is doing well, it does business. When business begins to do poorly, it does government. And so, you know, Microsoft does not go to the government in 1976 when they're hot and new and have the greatest thing. They go in 1999 or whenever they start all their lobbying efforts when they're at the moment where they still have money. They still have a lot of money. They have big bank accounts. But they're losing – the competitive marketplace did very well for them for a while and suddenly competition is tough. So they eliminate competition. So, Julia, this is the nexus you cover, but but I think Adam is right about the old media. But in this case, we also have an entirely new playing field. We have the internet, which is a, which does not have the entrenched interests. Yet we have people there who do have interests in protecting things there. And is that the fight we're seeing? Yeah, it is. And I mean, to be honest, there isn't really a universal right to link because there's the Google no follow tag, which basically is. Google offers people the opportunity to remove their links. And so I think that distribution channels in general, um, we're still sorting out how that is going to play out, whether distributors online are going to get pay people for access, whether they're going to limit links out. My boss, Rupert Murdoch, is still, you know, I don't report directly to him, obviously, um, is arguing. Everyone does. Everyone does. But, you know, he's arguing 
that there should be a new distribution model online. So I think actually it's still open to debate how this is going to play but out. I think it's a free speech issue. I think it does come down to fair comment and my ability to say that if you put something in private, fine, it's private. But once it's in public, public is public, whether it's on a street corner or whether it's on the internet. But this is the at problem some with point, the internet. I have a right to picture that, tell you about it, comment on it. But here's the problem. What is the public? Okay, it used to be that you knew when you were in public and you knew what that meant. Right now, in Facebook, you think you're in private with your friends. You're not. It's public. It gets reposted. It gets, you know, that happens all the time. Indeed, Mark Zuckerberg is almost arguing that private is over. It is. No, this is actually a huge debate. And this is actually what I'm spending my entire year reporting on at the Wall Street Journal is what is privacy now? Because the truth is, right before I walked into the studio, I tweeted that I'm here. So that makes it public that we're all here. It used to be this was a private thing. None of us would have talked about it until the and podcast you made us came public, out. Yes. yes. And I didn't ask you guys. <laughs> well, right. then get out. And I've been I trying to hide you, my association with Jeff Jarvis I for years. I won't let you play with my Nexus One phone. Ooh. Oh, nice. Uh, so it comes out, and I have one you don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we're still holding our collective and bated breath for the purported arrival of the Apple tablet. Uh, I'll be glad when it comes out because we can finally see whether this is indeed the salvation of traditional media that David Carr of The New York Times thinks it is or Michael Wolf again of Vanity Fair thinks not. What do we think? I mean, come on. Since when has a device been the salvation <laughs> of all of media? It's going to take a lot more than that. But um, I disagree. I think when you get an Apple tablet, you are going to just go through lots and lots of classified ads that you haven't picked. You're going to have lots of – I mean, obviously, it's ridiculous. The central <laughs> issue here I – I literally couldn't understand David Carr's column where he celebrated the tablet as, as some salvation – it costs less to access lots of information and his solution is somehow we're going to make it cost more. more we right. already know even in legacy media, consumers did not pay enough to provide the content. So we're saying that in a period where it's actually cheaper to produce, cheaper to distribute – and you have many more options. People are going to pay more than yeah. they did ever before. It's crazy. I think his economic arguments are all off. But I understand the psychology of editors and writers wanting to control the experience again. That's what they really lost online is the control. David was on the jury of my entrepreneurial journalism class. And uh, he spoke to one of the students who had a content idea. And he told her – he always speaks in metaphors. And he said – do it for the tablet. That's how David talks. Um, uh, the journalist must go to the ocean. What the hell does that mean? But what he meant was that you have to do it all. You have the opportunity to do it all. You can, you can, when you make it for the tablet, you're making audio and video and all this stuff. And he's excited about that. I appreciate the excitement, but his business modeling is well, full also, of crap. Well, also, let's just remember that there's like a 15-year history of tablets failing. Okay, this is not the first tablet. I have been covering technology a very long time. I have seen many tablets. I've seen touch tablets. I've seen pen tablets. I've seen open and closed tablets. I've seen flat tablets that pivot, you know. No, You know why? Nobody knows what it is. Do you stick it in your purse? Do you bring it to work? What are you doing with it? Are you lying in bed with it? Nobody understands it. We understand the phone. We understand the desktop. We understand the laptop. But the tablet has not yet figured out its place in our life. And every one of these innovations makes the cost of producing and distributing cheaper. And there is no – Nothing I can think of without massive government intervention where the cost of producing something goes cheaper and the price of it goes higher. It just – it's contrary well, it's to basic – Well, it's a dream I, scenario for Apple if that's the case. But Yeah. I mean, you know, and by the way, my Nexus One, it's nice, but I know iPhone, Senator, and you're no iPhone. Yeah. So I might actually send it back. Finally. 
when we held a conference here at CUNY and New Business Models for News and I introduced Adam Davidson as one of the guys who created the giant pool of money report on This American Life in cooperation with NPR News, the room of grizzled journalists and grumpy bloggers erupted as one in applause. It was that good. Uh, Adam went on then to co-create Planet Money, a podcast that in the height of the financial emergency was on daily and now is on three times a week. And it tries to explain what the hell is going on with this complicated economy and what it means to us. And what strikes me about it is that it is the best explanatory journalism that I've heard about the hardest story to explain. Uh, It's as conversational, though more informative uh, as the chatter here. Uh, It's not broadcast on the air. Uh, So I want to talk about digital media's impact on coverage of this huge story. But first, Adam, talk for a moment about running an entrepreneurial seedling in the old growth forest of NPR. I mean, it's wonderful and it's horrible all at the same time. I think it's, you know, NPR has been unbelievably supportive. You know, this was very much a collaboration with Ellen Weiss, the senior vice president of news. She immediately heard Giant Pool of Money and said, oh, there is clearly an audience for human explanatory journalism about complicated finance issues. We got to figure out a way to make this a regular part of what we do. And she's been very, very supportive. She's been pushing me as a legacy media executive to think digital to think not creating a radio show as we would have done five years ago, but creating multiple digital distribution channel type coverage. And so all that is wonderful. But we spend a lot of time like just when you're in a legacy media organization, it's wait, are you a show? Are you a, a news desk? Are What are you? And I just can't tell you how often I have to say, well, we're none of those were some new thing. I call us a team. Other people call us a project, etc. I do think that I have felt that this moment of financial crisis and the uh, ability of podcasting, it's sort of magical because I I remember a a friend of mine who's a business reporter at the New York Times said, what I'm so jealous of you is you get to be ignorant. You get to discover stuff on the air. We get to see you think one thing and then a few days later think something else. And That was one of the great things about Planet Money was that the, the incredulity you had came out. I know. I can't believe this either, but let me tell you. Right. Exactly. And I think this, and then a week later, ah, it turned out I was wrong. And, you know, you don't hear major legacy media products with huge fixed costs admitting they're wrong because you it's it's not part of the format. And so I feel like this financial crisis, which in my mind – so my friend at the New York Times said, I'm a New York Times reporter. Every article I write, the embedded assumption is we already know everything and we're going to tell you a bit of it. Right. It's the voice of God. It's the voice of God. And this crisis revealed that all the financial voices of God were ignorant, didn't understand what was happening, were hubristic, overconfident, etc. So I feel like this new media has allowed an exploration – I mean you and I had a talk early on right before Planet Money started and you really helped us kind of define this. And it's not just us. This has been – I mean for me personally, when I think of blogs, I think of economics blogs. There's so many economists out there, major Nobel Prize winning economists who are wondering stuff in public, trying to figure it out. As Dave Weiner says, the sources are now publishing. Yeah. And this crisis, it's like for the first time in in my lifetime – the big news story is something no one understands. It's it's as if the Iraq war happened, but no one understood what an army was, what a bullet was, what a city was, what a bomb was, what a soldier was. Nobody understood the basic vocabulary of it. Nobody understood how it worked. So it's 
amazing that we're able to discover it together in public. So, Julia, you were on one of the early Planet Money podcasts. It was a very good interview you two did. Uh, and you also admitted you were friends from college. Yes. Um, Full you, disclosure. You yeah. this morning just came from doing a Wall Street Journal show online. Have yep. you found that digital in any way helps you tell your stories better? So I am the tech editor for online at WSJ.com. So I run tech coverage online and I actually feel exactly like you, that I'm like a little seedling within uh, a large media organization. And it's really funny. I actually feel like I'm just putting out my college paper again because I have zero resources. There's this huge newsroom around me. I come up with the story. I report it. I write it. I edit it. I copy edit it. I write the headline. I write the – I find the art. I write the caption. I Post it. Like literally I do every single piece of production and every once in a while I get someone else to write the story. That's the one piece I ever get to farm out. And so it's exhilarating because I love the autonomy. That's why I loved running my college newspaper. As Adam knows, I was a little bit of a mini dictator in college. Um, but <laughs> My I, first editor ever. Uh, but also it's incredibly frustrating that this whole organization is still so slow to turn. And yet I have to say that I really am optimistic actually about our ability to turn because every day like I convert another person in the newsroom and they suddenly see. And so it's it's like being a missionary and it's fun. I run a program and a course here in entrepreneurial journalism and it's a rather snotty way to put it. But I say that, that the future of news is entrepreneurial, not institutional. And I think that means that it has to come from – whether it's inside or outside the organization mm-hmm. – the change we're going to have is going to come from entrepreneurs like you, whether you run your own company or whether you can do it inside the company. What's hopeful here, I think, is that I'm hearing you can do it inside a big old I mean, I think you can do it if you're well-funded. So this is the diff- – you know, NPR, us, like we have this billionaire, Rupert Murdoch, who just like, crazy loves the Wall Street Journal. If he didn't, we, I would have nothing, right? So he really is investing in our – paper in a way that the previous owners, although you know they were devoted to editorial independence, never did. Right. So anyways, I have to say like I am grateful for that because it does take money to do this stuff and I don't think I would be able to get venture capital funding to do it truly entrepreneurial unless I'm not understanding the VC market for news. That's something I'm I'm very mindful of. We're we're very entrepreneurial. We've been very protected by our managers to allow us to do stuff that that really would have been unthinkable in in our culture two years ago, three years ago. Um, but at the same time, I'm very cognizant of the fact that I'm sort of an entrepreneurial startup. But I wake up every morning and I get to reach 26 million listeners on Morning Edition. And all things considered, I have an office. I have a state of the art studio. I have the best engineering staff in the business. Except, uh, no, I do. I yeah, do. You do. You do. <laughs> um, and so I don't have an answer to this, but I think some version, at least in the interim, of entrepreneurship that's linked to big, rich, relatively rich. I don't think anyone at NPR thinks they're actually rich, but bigger, more established uh, legacy media. S- some combination of the two seems like a good recipe, and I, I don't know how to formalize that. But but it's worth um, pointing out, um, not to poach on your Google fanboy status, but it is true that organizations that can maintain an entrepreneurial spirit – and I grew up in the Silicon Valley. So I've seen companies that have maintained it over time and that does seem to be like the dream scenario. It's very hard to achieve and no company really ever achieves it fully. But that is hopefully. That's what we've got to figure out. I think that the technology does have a – biorhythm of obsolescence, of constant change that we didn't have. We have a biorhythm of institutional power and we don't change and that was our strength and I think that's right now our greatest weakness and we're learning that. We have companies that do say, oh my god, what do I do? They don't know what to do but they at least recognize I think finally that they have to change. 
I think that's right, but they also recognize they have to keep doing what they're doing. Like my constant frustration, which is an internal frustration, is I want to be given lots and lots of time to explore and figure out and find new ways to tell stories. Morning Edition and All Things Considered each have two hours a day that they, they to need to fill. Yeah. And we don't – nobody's like lying around doing nothing. We got – we're – you know, NPR, like everyone, is is understaffed. Um, my team is really good at reporting on the I'll economy. I'll come on and do, and do commentaries. Uh, okay, I'll fill sure. some of those minutes. <laughs> so I think the tension is not a, oh, dumb old legacy people. They don't understand the future. It's, yes, I want to live in the future, but my bills are being paid by what exists now. That's reaching an audience now that has a business model now. And how do you serve the current business model but also invest in the future business model? I don't think there's a perfect solution. And there, I think, is the essence of what leads not to the financial crisis. But what we're seeing is a shift from the industrial economy to whatever comes next. And that's what you really cover. But we have no more time. So I'll wrap that up for another month here. And pardon me while I go set my TiVo to record the farewells of Leno, O'Brien, and Cowell. And now for our farewells. Thank you, Julia. Thank you so much. And thank you, Adam. Thank you, Jeff. Media Talk USA is engineered and edited by Chad Bernhardt and produced by me. We record in the studios of the City University of New York Graduate School of Journalism. Don't forget to add your comments to our blog at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalkusa. Make sure you subscribe from there, too, so you don't miss next month's edition, which will be uploaded as near as we can get to the first week of February. I'm Jeff Jarvis. Thank you for listening. <laughs>